the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Big news in the NBA this week, and then a new LifeWay research poll on racial reconciliation in the church. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Thursday, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. It is good to be uh, with us today, With uh, to have you with us today, I should say. Glad to be together here on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. Steve, couple big stories in, B- in the NBA this week. And you know what? Aubrey's not here, so... I'm driving this with sports. We're going to talk some sports. Okay. Uh, Two main stories in the NBA. Let's start with the historic one. Uh, That being uh, LeBron James. So LeBron James broke the all-time scoring record uh, set in 1984 by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It was always seen as an unbreakable record. And uh, LeBron James, who has now been playing for 20 years and is still averaging 30 points a game, which is unbelievable. Uh, LeBron James broke that record the other day uh, in a loss to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Just to reflect, you stayed up. You told me you, the other day you stayed up and you watched it at least up until when he broke the record. Uh, a lot of people doing some reflections upon LeBron James. What were your thoughts as you were watching that on TNT the other night? You know, I, I feel like this is such a, a polarizing conversation. Ironically, that it's just sports and not um, and not politics. Uh, <laughs> yes, this causes disunity in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just remember, you know, I was in high school when LeBron James was in high school, so I remember wow. him getting all these accolades and and you know them being so great. And I, and he's in Ohio. I'm in Indiana. And so I just and my high school team uh, was the number two ranked high school team to his high school team. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so I remember being kind of like a LeBron hater in a way. And I always was like, man, Carmelo Anthony's going to be the better NBA player. And I like that Carmelo Anthony is going to be the better NBA player. And so then he gets into the NBA and I just remember really enjoying his game, like his passing ability for such a big guy, um, his rebounding. And, and even like, I enjoyed the way that he made the game, not about him. Um, but it was like involving the other players around him where like Kobe and Michael was just like, listen, we get by any means necessary, we got to win. And so, um, it's not that, you know, LeBron might not have the same level of killer instinct that those, uh, those guys did, but I, I just liked his approach to trying to incorporate everybody else as a part of his leadership style. And, then watching him, obviously, you know, people think that he made mistakes in terms of things that he said over the course of the years. But there was a lot of stuff that Michael Jordan would not say um, and would not speak up uh, and out about because, um, 
you know, he didn't want it to tarnish his brand. And right. so I appreciate that about LeBron. I don't think he's always said everything the right way. Um, you know, I think Kobe Bryant probably, uh, you know, when I think of a, an ambassador for the game who could speak on all types of different things, I was excited to, to see what Kobe was going to be yeah. in the future as he spoke about things and spoke about the game and spoke about society. Um, but I think that this particular record I mean, it's a record that nobody thought would be broken. And not only did nobody think is going to was going to be broken, but he still averages 30. Yeah, so he's going to go for a while yeah. longer. Yeah. So that means there's 10 there, there might be 10,000 more points added to Kareem's record. Um, that, that goes above Kareem's record. And I just think that, and, and then at the end of it, he's going to be top three in assists, top, yes. maybe top three in rebounds. Yeah. That's I, crazy. And, I, and I don't know all the specifics of the numbers on those things, but to me that readily enforces him as at least the second greatest of all time. Yeah. And yeah. I'm completely comfortable. I just, I, I don't get the shade that's thrown at LeBron for being the second best of all time. I feel like people try to make it seem like it's, he's pitted up against Michael Jordan, right? They're just two totally different players, but he has to be acknowledged to me at this point as the second best all time. 20 years doing what he's doing is, is unbelievable, but he's not just a stat compiler, right? He's, he's top five scoring average for his career, which is, you know, Jordan's number one. Uh, it's just crazy. And like you said, he's not stopping. You know, the guy spends over a million dollars on his body every year. That's wild. <laughs> and l another thing you pointed out that I think is important for people to point out, uh, you cannot find a scandal in his life. Like the guy seems to be a good dad. He's been married to the same woman for his high school sweetheart. Uh, the worst thing people say about him is the decision to Miami was kind of clunky. You're like, if that's the worst you're going to do, so be it. So congratulations, obviously, to LeBron James. All right. The second big story, Kyrie Irving. And I'm going to swing this to the church eventually, but Kyrie Irving blowing up another team and yet another team welcoming him in that being the Dallas Mavericks. He got traded from the Brooklyn Nets after saying he wanted to be traded. He's now blown through Cleveland, Boston and uh, Brooklyn. And now he's on to Dallas. Do you have thoughts on Kyrie Irving? I, I mean, I have so many, I have so many thoughts on Kyrie I, and, and some of it is, you know, even like the, the other thing. And I, I talked about this earlier when, when he, uh, got in trouble for his, his tweets. Um, and, and, and one of the things, ironically, I think that in terms of like his anti-Semitic, uh, perspective, um, is that like the, the, there are certain religious groups that are probably considered a cult to the broader world that actually carry this same idea of, uh, the, so the black Hebrew Israelites, if you were to listen to, uh, some of Kendrick Lamar's albums, you'll hear him talk to an uncle who's a black Hebrew Israelite who openly says like, yeah, we are the people of God and, uh, yada, yada, yada. We're the true Israelites and stuff like that. So I, I thought that that was ironic that that was the thing. And I, I don't know the particulars of the documentary that he was on sure, sure. Uh, that he retweeted, but I remember thinking like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who, who, uh, 
have this black Hebrew Israelite perspective um, because it's like a, it, so I wondered like does that infringe on religious freedom in some way I, I don't know I'm in mm. no shade to uh, to anybody on that I just was curious about that and how they came at how hard they came at him about it but then at on on the other side of like it seems like oh okay Kyrie is reacclimating himself he's he's really playing well seems to be leading the team in a in a healthy way and 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 ultimately wants this long-term extended contract and it's like man you you did too much to try to expect a long-term contract from really from anybody Mm -hmm. um and it's just it's just a matter of being available to play the game and so it's interesting to me that he's um that that he's asks for another trade uh it'll be interesting to me to see how this whole thing in dallas goes because it seemed like he really wanted to be uh kind of the front street of he's he's still not the best player on the team you know what i mean so like will he ever be happy if he's not the best player on the team and it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like the team can be great unless there's another player that's better than him on the team, but then he still has to operate within knowing that he's not the best player on the team. I think on some level, people need to, a good thing in life is believe people when they tell you who they are, right? Like, Uh, whether that be, you know, thinking that you can rehabilitate a pastor who blew through multiple churches because of lack of character or something, but they're really charismatic. You're like, oh, we'll be, we'll be this culture will fix it. He, uh, my guess with Kyrie Irving is he will do well for the rest of the year in Dallas. And, uh, because he needs a contract, but then yeah. when he gets that contract, he, he blows up the, he, He's also seems to be someone who thinks he's smarter than everyone else in the room. Kind of like Aaron Rodgers too, right? Like they all think they're like smarter than everybody else. And you just listen to him and you're like, man, you believe the earth is flat and you believe this? Like, let's just like call a spade a spade. So my takeaway from Kyrie Irving is believe people when they tell you who they are. (laughs) And, but him and Luka Doncic for the rest of the year, that's going to be something that that, that could be something. All right. We got our sports fix out of us coming up next. A fascinating LifeWay study on racial reconciliation in the church. Uh, A lot of what they found plays right into what we talked to Steve about, about his own church. So I want to go over some of these statistics, see if we're surprised by them, and what do we take away from them. Going to do that LifeWay research study poll next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, Steve, a fascinating study out of LifeWay research. LifeWay research does a ton of polls and studies and uh, research projects primarily focused on the church. What is going on within the church? So let me just read to you some of the statistics from their most recent survey. Uh, And I would just love your uh, feedback, your uh, impressions of it. The title reads this pastors encourage racial reconciliation. Churchgoers want more diversity in the church in a survey of American churchgoers. And they do big, big surveys. Uh, 49% of respondents say their church needs to become more ethnically diverse, including 18% who strongly agree. At the same time, nearly 7 in 10 say their church is doing enough 
to be ethnically diverse. Uh, when a church, Scott McConnell, executive director of Lifeway, said when a church is largely one ethnicity, making progress towards ethnic diversity is not easy, yet that doesn't mean many of these churches aren't trying. So the statistics they found are this. People want to be more ethnically diverse, and people think that their church is doing enough. I would like your feel on just that one in particular, within light of what we said about your church, where you're doing a lot of very strategic things. Um, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to bet that you don't agree with people that their churches are doing enough. But what do you take in general from this Lifeway research? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's cool that, that that's a... Uh that's a thought that's on people's minds and that's on people's hearts. Um, I think that that is probably something that's more recent. I think, I do think that the multi-ethnic church is going to be a great, um, kind of apologetic to the gospel and the power of the gospel to people who are far from God in the future. Um, as sort of like, you know, we talk about that as politics becomes kind of like a, a religion in, in some instances in, in the country. And, um, and I think, I think too, that, um, people are probably really unaware of what it actually takes in order to become ethnically diverse. Um, and one of the things that I think as, as somebody who has tried to champion, uh, the multi-ethnic church for, um, as long as I've been a Christian, really, um, I think that for a lot of people who want to have a true multi-ethnic experience, like a genuine multi-ethnic experience, it's probably best for the leader of that church to be a minority leader. Um, otherwise there's, there's still some, it might, it might have other colors in the room, but if the leader of the, if the leader is a majority culture leader, um, they're probably not going to be as aware of their, their culture being influential in how decisions are made on how, uh, everything is even put together. Um, and, and that's because, you know, when your culture is the dominant culture, you don't, you don't have to think about other cultures. So the one that, that you are participating in is, uh, is the one that you're calling everybody to as the normal culture. Um, and, and it's, it's not, you know, everybody would say, well, I'm trying to not do that. And I don't want to do that. Um, but it's just the reality of the, the water that you swim in. So you'd have to do a lot, an incredible, an incredible amount of work to figure out how much your culture influences your, your everyday life and decisions. And, and, and that just comes naturally to me that yeah. that's, and, and so I don't, I don't want to be Debbie Downer about it. Um, I want to encourage people to try. I'm just like, this is, this is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. So what does try look like? Because that's one thing I've picked up from you and from Aubrey uh, is the amount of strategy, the amount of long-term vision casting this takes, the amount of pain that can come along with it. So a pastor uh, or a church leader is listening to our show right now and they're going, yeah, you know, I feel this in my heart. My church is not ethnically diverse at all. How do you even start down that path? What would you say to that pastor who's hearing you say, okay, it's going to take a lot of pain and a lot of effort and a lot of this. Uh, what is even step one or, or the first two steps that people can take? 
I think I'll tell you what, I give you the most important step. Okay. Here's the, here's the most important step. Um, here's the, here's the, the crux of, of something that there, here's the cheat code. If there ever was one. <laughs> it's that you need a minority who is unassimilated to be on your elder board. Mm. A minority who is not just, um, you know, a non, a non Carlton Banks elder. <laughs> you need a Denzel, you need a Denzel Washington elder, right? Okay. And that, that's the cheat code. Cause then you start to realize as a group of elders and leaders, Oh, I'm making cultural decisions that you mm. don't think are cultural decisions. Um, so I think at the highest level, you know, it's one thing everybody's like, well, get somebody who's not white on the staff, yeah. get somebody, you know, and, and that's fine. But ultimately if everybody who's making every major decision is of the majority culture, it, it won't move anywhere. So you yeah. need somebody who's a peer who's making uh, decisions for the church that is coming from a different perspective. Good use of Carlton Banks right there, by the way. That was a, that was a good use there. Uh, so do you think this is the trajectory of the church in the sense of 50 years from now? Do you think the American church will look more multi-ethnic or, uh, or not? And, and why do you think that? I, I hope so. I hope, yeah. I think that we could do a lot of, a lot of good, um, that way. I hope that especially in the places where there is uh, tremendous representation of, of ethnic diversity, that that's the, that that's the case. Um, and I hope that, um, because I think that when that happens, then like you're connecting people, you take care of people who you're in community with. Mm -hmm. So like if somebody at your church is, can't find a job, um, you know, you, you're wanting to help them find a job. But then when you bring together people from uh, different ethnicities and cultures and you start to care for one another, now you're like participating in like a changing of social structures. Mm -hmm. Um, in a, in, in a city, you know, stuff, stuff like that. And so I'm hopeful that it is the case. I think too, like in the future, like it's going to be important for how we reach people, especially in, you know, places that are, uh, ethnically diverse and, um, yeah. And I, and I hope that kind of like the past five or six years of whatever fracturing has happened around, uh, politics, gets changed and we start to realize like we're starting to treat politics like religion mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and trying to import our politics into our, into our Christianity rather than, uh, Vice rather versa. than the other way. Yeah. Uh, one interesting point, uh, from this survey that speaks to the future says the youngest adult churchgoers, those aged 18 to 34 and also ages 35 to 49, uh, both came in at 63% of a desire to see a more multi-ethnic church, whereas those ages 50 to 64 were at 46%, and those over the age of 65 uh, were 33%. Those were those who agree that their church needs to become more multi-ethnically multi diverse. So that's interesting uh, when it speaks to the future. There's still This is why I love having you on the show, because I think you have a very honest appraisal of 
what it will take to get there versus like, hey, this would be great uh, instead of, no, this is going to take some pain and some work. Uh, and we'll see. We will see what the future holds. Well, coming up next, uh, I want to talk about with Steve as two guys, as two pastors. There's some interesting studies about changing cultural attitudes around pornography. Uh, but I want to talk about this mostly in relation to the church. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. As we've been saying all along, Steve and I are both pastors. I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. I'm out in the suburbs. Steve is in the city. He's at Renewal Church of Chicago, as he likes to say, a stone's throw away from the United Center. So uh, both doing pastoral work, which means we work with all sorts of different people. But in that, we we work with men. And uh, that's what got me thinking. There was an article recently that said there's some cultural attitudes around pornography that are changing. A lot of celebrities speaking out against pornography. I think there's a lot more honesty about just what, how people get into the pornography business, human trafficking, other sorts of things. But this is an evergreen topic when dealing with men in the church, Steve. So I'm wondering, how do you even attack it? Is this something that you talk about openly from the pulpit? Is this something you talk about in a men's group, one-on-one, -on -one, all of these? Uh, and then what is your general message around the dangers of pornography? Man, Brian, you always ask, like... It's a big one. Give me your Winston Churchill on this. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that one of the things that I've, I've experienced over the course of time with pastoring guys is that... Um, you know, I, I think that Satan uses shame in a way to debilitate uh, men from being able to lead and being able to be uh, stalwarts of the faith in their homes and at church. Um, and so and then also, I, th I think that people can get so caught up in this one area that it sort of uh, paralyzes any other service that they can have to God or to society because they're so paralyzed by this one particular thing. And I think like sometimes in, in evangelical space, I, I try to like, we, we highlight, uh, sexual integrity as, as something that is like more important than other things. And so I, I want to make sure that there's like a balanced perspective of, cause sometimes I think when we highlight something so much, we, we like give it power in some, mm. in some, uh, weird way. And so sometimes when I, when I talk to these guys, um, they feel paralyzed. And part of the reason they feel paralyzed is, is because of their shame. And part of the reason why they feel ashamed, um, is because they can't control it. They can't, they don't feel like they have the agency to stop. And, um, and one of the reasons why, you know, you hear me, you, you know, I, I go this, this, uh, to this direction all the time is that oftentimes I think that when we get down to the nuts and bolts, after a person has put all their covenant eyes on their, their <laughs> computer and they got their accountability group and, and they, you know, got other things going on yep. is that they don't actually want grace to be grace. Mm. They want to have something to do with being able to say, I got over this myself. Mm. Um, 
not not that God's uh, in God's kindness because of his love and affection for me. I'm pursuing obedience in this. Um, and I, that's like a soul level thing. So that like you got to work through that with somebody and get down to the to the to the roots of some stuff. Um, but then at, at the same time, I think that. I think that Satan wants to get guys caught up in this one particular area to leave them useless in so many other different areas. So mm. one particular way that I'm talking to some guys and, and they're, you know, they got their, um, they've got all their, you know, things in place. And they're like, Steve, will you still, can, can we still talk about this together? So one thing that we're doing is we're starting a, a, like a community group around this particular thing. Oh, wow. So there's one guy who's experienced a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, freedom, um, from a long t- time addiction, uh, and, uh, gone through some serious counseling around it, brought his wife into counseling with him around it and just wants to really, really help other people. And so we've got a men's group starting up on February 18th and we're going to present this, like, uh, this group together. That's going to be more of a, a community, if you will, that is not just going to be like one on one on one. It can be one on one, but it's going to be like, no, we're, we're dialoguing around this together. We're keeping each other accountable around this together. Um, we're working through content together. And so I think the community aspect is, is really important. Um, you know, uh, I forget Renee, Renee Brown vulnerability breaks the power of shame. Mm. And so I think that there's, there's gotta be a space where people feel like they, they're not just coming to the priest to tell them, uh, you know, this is what I did, but there's a community aspect to it that people say, man, uh, me too. And I, and I think that that's the way that, that, um, somebody of like, uh, alcoholic anonymous and, and a lot of these, uh, organizations have found, uh, celebrate recovery have, yeah. have helped people. So. Absolutely. So, uh, some staggering statistics, uh, the, uh, the pornography industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and major league baseball combined. It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC, uh, and 47, uh, 56%, it says of American divorces, uh, have this as one of the reason, uh, six subsurveys say 68% of church going men and over 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis and it's getting worse as kids get younger. Uh, so it is a big deal that, that needs to be talked about and it is an addiction that can be, uh, come at Steve, you touched on community being a big aspect. Is that step one for you? If somebody came to you and said, or if you were saying, Hey, if you're dealing with a pornography addiction or, uh, this is something you do on a regular basis, um, I want to give people practical steps. There could be somebody, and we speak of guys. This is also a big yeah, issue yeah. for women. Uh, but let's be honest, it's a larger issue for men. Um, what would you suggest to somebody who's like, okay, I see this is a, is a big deal, but I've never done anything about it. How, what is step one? What is, I want to give somebody out there a practical do this in order to start down the path of healing. Yeah. So, so, um, I think, I think kind of like practical ground level is that you always have to have a plan. 
the plan the plan for defending yourself against your own uh, desires when they come up and they feel like uh, they overcome you um, and that plan means like um, maybe you do have uh, covenant eyes on your phone or on your on your computer uh, some of that I think is you have somebody you can call and tell how you feel about something. I used to remember back in the day, I, I would, I had a friend that we were close enough to where I could just say, Hey, this is how I'm feeling. And just <laughs> nice. the fact that I verbalized that out loud to somebody like disperse the, 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 the feeling itself. And so I'm like, all right, cool. Or I, you know, if I was in my house, I like get outside. All right. I'd, I'd be on the phone. I'd like go for a walk, clear your, clear your head. Um, and so those are some like super practical. First Corinthians 10, 13 talks about God giving us the way of escape mm. uh, when we're being tempted. And so like, where's the way of escape that you, uh, that's available to you. You know, look on, on the other, uh, James chapter one talks about, uh, sin, um, taking a hold of us, like desi the desire is there. And then when we let it fester, sin takes a hold of us mm. and, uh, and then gives birth to death. And so there's, there's an element of like, all right, when you feel the desire, you've got to combat that with something else, like leave the room, leave the, you know, whatever the case may be, you have to have a, a, a fight plan, so to speak for, um, what you're going to do. Otherwise you'll just find yourself in the same situation perpetually right. over and over and over again. That's right. Such a good word, man. And pastors out there, it is something we need to talk about and and just be honest about with our, ourselves, but also with our congregations. Well, coming up next, uh, Steve, we're going to wrap up your three day stint here on The Common Good. I'm going to do it with a question I ask most of our guests. We're going to do that for Steve next year on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Steve, thanks, man, for doing three days. Like, it's one thing to fill in for a day. It is another thing to go for three. So I do appreciate you, man. I appreciate you kind of turning your, your schedule upside down. But also, it's just fun. I got somebody I can yeah. talk sports with. I can, yeah. I can have a good time. So thanks for doing this, bud. You bet. My pleasure. And it will, it will not be the last time. So Steve will be a regular participant here on The Common Good. As a reminder, uh, if you want to connect with Steve's church, he is the teaching pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago, uh, a stone's throw from the United Center. When you say stone's throw, how exactly close is it to the United Center? It is five-minute drive. Okay. That's a long throw, man. <laughs> it's definitely a... Uh, it's a, it's a Justin Fields throw. There you go. It's a Justin Fields throw. Uh, everyone's hoping that to be the case. Uh, okay. I want to ask you an important kind of deep question before I do. I'm not sure I've ever asked you, you always tell the story and you did it yesterday or the day before I forget which day that you were a baseball player until you got hurt. I've not heard the injury story. What was the cataclysmic baseball injury? I, I tore a labrum and oh. never regained my velocity uh, back. Did you do it in a game, like while pitching, or was it a slow kind of tearing? No, it was a slow thing. It was uh, I started to get tendonitis in in my shoulder, and then I'd heal from the tendonitis, and then come back, and then, and then it just was never never right. Were you a, uh, what, what was the velocity a Steve Coble was bringing from the mound at his peak? 
88. It was it was 86 to 88. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a, you know, the tops of Division One top baseball player. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but you were a lefty, right? So probably a lot of movement. I'm guessing there's a lot of – you were throwing a lot of junk too. A little Jamie Moyer. Johan Santana. I'm a Johan. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Nobody else might enjoy this, but there is one particular story you tell from your baseball career of a future major <laughs> leaguer that I need you to tell again, because it is one of my favorite baseball stories that, that anybody has told. Yeah. One of the, one of the funny things growing up, there's, there's a pitcher for the White Sox. His name's Lance Lynn. Um, if you're a White Sox fan, you probably know exactly who I'm talking about, but he uh, grew up not far from where I grew up and we're like the exact same age. And so we played little league, uh, against one another. And then in the middle school and high school, uh, our schools would play one another. And then, and I always had a great amount of, uh, luck against them. I, I would say, but one particular time, um, he's pitching and I'm pitching and they just have the best team in, I think in the history of Indiana baseball. That being okay. said, I'm not familiar with all of the history of Indiana baseball. But anyways, they're, they're building at the time. This is like 2005, 2004. It's like 2004. They're building um, a new school out in Brownsburg, Indiana, where, where Lance Lynn is from. And it's just, it's way, way in the distance behind the, the fence in, in, on the baseball field. Okay. <laughs> and, and Lance Lynn hit a ball off of me that I think landed in the school, in the construction site of the school, <laughs> which to my estimation, to my estimation is legitimately 500, a 500 foot home run. <laughs> What's the feeling as he's rounding the bases? It must be. Yeah. I, I may not make it as far as I think in this game. <laughs> yeah ironically that was like i tightened it up i tightened it up after that that was a solo shot and um and so i just didn't i didn't put anything i I didn't give anything that was that was easy after that i was all i gotta tighten this up i gotta if i'm going (laughs) inside i better i better go inside and low or inside and up at the elbow and then i better be if i'm going outside i better put some some sauce better be on this thing um because they don't play it was just like oh oh that's possible that's and possible you, if you miss your spot. And you forget what kind of athletes pitchers are. Like major league pitchers were most likely the best baseball player, hitter, everything on their high school team. And yeah, now we yeah, watch exactly. them try to hit and they're, you know, they can't hit major leaguers, but it is something. So, okay. I love that. I love that story. My son loves to play baseball. And I told him that story. <laughs> I said, this guy that I do the radio show with, man, Lance Lynn hit him one, like 500 feet off him. And he was like, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. Let's close out your time this way. When we do interviews with pastors, with uh, authors, other leaders, I tend to like to ask, Ask them the same question at the end. And you've heard it many times, Steve. It's this. Are you hopeful for the church? Uh, If so, why are you hopeful? If you're not, what needs to change for you to be hopeful? It might be a it might be both. And so how would you answer the question? Are you hopeful for the church? You know, I I think and I I think Tim Challey said this um, a couple of days ago, but in, in, in a different way, I feel like. 
I have been unhopeful about certain things um, as it pertains to the church. Mm -hmm. And just over the course of the past several months with people who have come to faith in Christ at our church um, and then like people, church plants that have started that I got to hear stories of uh, different people. I literally got to hear people's testimony of how they found certain people online and um, came to faith through outreach events, serving the poor and, and different things. And you realize like. And God is still building his church. Yeah. And it, it doesn't really it, like there, there could be, uh, you know, an atomic bomb could hit it and somehow it's still coming out on the other side, uh, because it's God's will for it to, it's what he told, he said it would, would. So in, in many ways, I'm like, we just got to stick with the plan in terms of what God has called us to and be faithful. Mm. Um, to your point earlier, um, the, Eugene Peterson's a long obedience in the same direction. Keep plugging away. Keep plugging yeah. away. God is calling people to himself. That's a great word. And I, I think that's great for all of us out there. Keep plugging away. God's church isn't going anywhere. Uh, you know, I think somebody famously said that, uh, the church going forward was God's plan A when there wasn't a plan B. So, you know, love the church, but also part of loving the church is looking at it and going, here's its warts. Here's where it's missing the mark. Here's where we need to reform things and change things uh, and be honest with it. Uh, but it's a word of encouragement out there for those of you. I love that phrase that we both have used Eugene Peterson's a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, God is present. God is with you. Uh, and it is is um, you can keep going and persevere and trust that God is present and at work. Well, this has been fun, man. Thanks so much for doing this this last couple of days. My joy, Brian. Until yep. next time. Until next time. And uh, tomorrow, Aubrey will be back, and we are looking forward to that. We hope that you all have a great evening. For Steve Coble, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.